The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this and many other articles by Rusus John Rushdude. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke, and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdune. The Love of Death, Calcedon Position Paper, number 35. One of the most telling sentences in Scripture is Proverbs 8, 36. Quote, but he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Unquote. This means that the love of death marks every person and culture which is in sin against God. They are suicidal. This fact, stated so clearly by Solomon, has not lacked confirmation over the generations. In this century, Sigmund Freud, on non-biblical grounds, held that the will to death is the basic and governing fact in the lives of all men, and he accordingly had dim hopes for the future of civilization. The Bible tells us that there is an inseparable link between sin and death. Sin separates from God, the creator and giver of life. It is rebellion against God's law and government. The consequence of this separation from the source of all life is death and all sin means a love of and addiction to death. Jesus Christ says, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Unquote. John eleven twenty five and 26. To accept Christ's atonement and his lordship means that we separate ourselves from sin and death to life and righteousness or justice, and eternal life begins at once for us so that the power of death is broken. 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-five 55-57 Meanwhile, all around us the world is marked by a will to and a love of death. 
Every day the world economic scene shows more clearly this will to death. Inflation is the planned destruction of money and of the economy. In recent years, some people have acted as though one relatively mild destructive habit was newly found to be harmful. In example, smoking tobacco. But people knew that more than a generation ago, when Dr. Pearl's studies were released. Before Dr. Pearl's day, even the erring schoolboys knew it and called cigarettes, quote, coffin nails, unquote. It was definitely not a lack of knowledge. The same is true in the economic sphere. Very clearly, when Keynes was asked about the consequences of his economics, he said, quote, In the long run, we are all dead, unquote. Suicidal men demand suicidal economics and the same kind of politics. President Reagan's campaign speeches spelled out the consequences of deficit financing, unsound money, financing and aiding world Marxism, and more, all things he is presently doing and defending. The politics of death prevails in Washington, D.C. and all the world capitals. The dying do not plan for tomorrow or next year, and the politics of death thinks only in terms of today. George Orwell, in 1984, depicted clearly the consequences of the politics of death. However, not being a man of biblical faith, he failed to see the roots thereof. Modern man has denied the triune God and has insisted that the universe is a product of chance and accident. Instead of a cosmic and total meaning, his universe is one of absolute meaninglessness. If the only rationality in the universe is in the mind of man, and if the mind of man, since fraud, is simply the irrational product of man's unconscious, then meaninglessness is absolute and total. Then to hunger for truth and meaning is a sign of foolishness and irrationality. Greco-Roman paganism saw this cosmic emptiness as grounds for hedonism. Quote, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Unquote. The greatest celebration and most loved event of the Roman Empire was the quote, circus, unquote, with its gladiators battling to death, Christians thrown to the lines, and death in various other ways made into a spectator sport. The cry of the gladiators on entering the arena, quote, Hail Caesar! We who are about to die salute you, unquote, epitomized the spirit of Rome. Death was a game, and all courted it in their own way and glorified it in the arena. As the Lord declares, quote, All they that hate me love death, unquote. Statist education is increasingly education for death, national death. Jonathan Kozal and the Prisoners of Silence and the U.S. News and World Report, May 17, 1982, pages 53 through 56. Quote, Ahead, a nation of illiterates. Unquote. Document the sorry plight of the United States. The economy is requiring more and more educated and skilled workers, and the state schools are producing illiterates who cannot hold such jobs. The illiterate and near-illiterate are functionally illiterate. 
number between 57 and 63 million. This illiteracy and joblessness constitute, quote, a form of social dynamite, unquote. The situation grows worse annually, and the attacks on Christian schools for providing an alternative and superior education grows more intense. To criticize the state schools is in many circles the mark of fascism, superstition, religious bigotry, and more. The lovers of death resent the possibility of life and a future for any segment of the republic. On every side, the death wish is with us, organized into intense campaigns and movements. Zero population growth, zero economic growth, and so on. Note the passion with which the anti-nuclear weapons movement exaggerates the potential of such weapons, its readiness to believe in the total destruction of the world, and to relish a film depicting it, while at the same time pursuing policies of disarmament which will invite war. Within the church, it is amazing to see the passion with which men defend eschatologies of death. History, such men insist, cannot end in the Lord's victory and the rule of the saints from pole to pole, but only in defeat. Things will only go from bad to worse, such men declare, until the end of the world. Somehow, they see it as unspiritual and unchristian to believe in an eschatology of victory. Instead of a joyful and triumphant faith, such men manifest a sour and retreatist faith. The love of death is very clear in the abortionist movement. Its advocates are suicidal in a number of ways. While I have no way of verifying this, a few persons familiar with abortion, quote, clinics, unquote, tell me that there is a high rate of the use of narcotics and an overuse of alcohol among staff members. It is important to note that the Ten Commandments in the word or law concerning life reads, quote, Thou shalt not kill, unquote. Some translate it as, quote, murder, unquote. But there is another Hebrew word as in Psalm 10, 8, for murder, harag, to smite or kill with deadly intent. In Exodus 20.13, the word is ratsack, from a root, to dash in pieces, kill, to put to death. This word can mean murder also, but it is somewhat more general. The meaning of, quote, thou shalt not kill, unquote, is that all killing is forbidden except where permitted by God's word. An example, in the execution of lawfully condemned men, in self-defense, in defensive warfare, in eliminating those animals and pests which hinder farming, ranching, etc., in killing for food, and the like. In other words, all life is created by God, and the taking of any life must be subject to God's law word. Because we are not our own, but are God's creation and property, we cannot take our own lives because we are God's possession. One of the marks of a sound faith is a love of life, and the godly use it thereof, whereas a suicidal and a destructive use of our lives and of the lives of other men and creatures manifest an alien foundation. Suicide is thus normally a religious fact. This qualification, quote, normally, unquote, is necessary these days because many medically administered drugs have deadly side effects and when more than one is taken, produce deadly and frightening results. 
Many religions have taken a favorable view of suicide and have even exalted it as the path of honor and dignity. In some cultures, when the king died, wives and retainers competed for the privilege of being buried alive with their monarch. H.J. Rose, in his survey of suicide among non-Christian religions, Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, Volume 12, page 23, held, quote, Probably the chief, if not the only reason for this, religious opposition to suicide among primitive races is simply the dread of the ghost. The self-destroyer must have been greatly wronged or troubled in some way, or he would not have acted as he did. Therefore his ghost will be an unusually troublesome and revengeful spirit. Unquote. However, the fact is that in these cultures all the spirits of the dead are feared as hostile. Life is seen as a realm of hostilities and suspicion, and death may even aggravate that fact. Hence such religions manifest a fear of life as such, and they see no escape even in death from the cosmic hostilities. The cosmos is a realm of wars of the gods, men, and spirits. Not too long ago, I wrote position paper number 25, quote, The Trouble with Social Security, unquote. It was reprinted in various newsletters and magazines, and the reprints brought in some interesting mail. At present, Social Security is both morally and economically bankrupt. Arlo Cedarberg commented recently, quote, With the graying of America, one of the ticking time bombs in the money wars, the Social Security system which could make the troubles of Chrysler or International Harvester seem like child's play, unquote. Arlo Cedarberg, quote, Moneyline, unquote, in Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, Tuesday, August 31st, 1982, page A8. The system is economically unsound, but with retired persons accounting for about 20% of all voters Nothing constructive is being done. It is easy to see why. The people who wrote to me were elderly persons on Social Security. Facts mean nothing to them. They saw any, quote, tampering, unquote, with Social Security as, quote, unchristian, unquote. Social Security has pushed France into an economic sickness and socialism. And if the present trend continues here, will lead to an American debacle as well. No one is ready to discuss the economic issues, nor the moral ones. Any and every refusal to face the fullness of reality, however, is suicidal. The love of death is a cultural and personal fact. Where men do not have true atonement, they seek self-atonement, which means sadomasochistic activities. The result is that the culture is death rather than life-oriented. However, there is no honesty in this orientation. Typical of the fact was a young man, an artist with wasted abilities, who liked nothing more than to rant against the churches and Christians for their supposed lack of any love or enjoyment of life. He refused to see his own death wish and love of death as evidenced in his part in the sex revolution drug culture, and his living in fragrant contempt of common sense. He was dead before 30, and to the last, insisting that he was a champion of life and freedom.
On the other hand, the love of God is the love of life. Obedience to God is obedience to the laws of life. To seek to live without law, God's law, is to seek death. The dead in a graveyard are integrated with the natural world. Those who are alive in the triune God exercise dominion over the world in terms of God's law word. They do not conform either to the culture of this world or to, quote, natural, unquote, impulses, because having been created in the image of God, it is to God's image they must conform themselves. The image of God, in its narrow sense, is defined thus by the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 10, quote, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures, unquote. Genesis 1, 26-28, Colossians 3:10, and Ephesians 4, 24. In its broader sense, the image of God includes more. His revelation in Scripture is a manifestation of His image, of His knowledge, righteousness, or justice, holiness, dominion, glory, law, grace, judgment, and more. Thus, to conform ourselves to God's image rather than to the tempter's plan to be our own God, Genesis 3, 5, means to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. There is no true life by bread alone, but rather by God's sovereign grace through Christ and faithfulness than to His word. Jesus Christ is declared to be, quote, the word of life, 1 John 1, 1. It is He who shows us, quote, the path of life, unquote, Psalms 16, 11. And this is set forth in the totality of His Word. We cannot claim to love life and neglect the Lord and Giver of life and His Word which sets forth the way of life. The path of life and the love of life means a God-ordained way in every area of life and thought. The essence of the modern perspective is that man claims to be autonomous and to seek his freedom from the triune God. All too many churchmen profess an adherence to the Lord of life while affirming an autonomous way in most things. This is antinomianism. It is also the love of death. Quote, Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is a man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Unquote. Proverbs 8, 32-35, December 1982 The Failure of Men Cal Position Paper number 36 The roots of every cultural crisis rest in personal crises. The failure of a culture is the failure of the men in it. A society cannot be vital and possessed of an ongoing vigor if the men therein are marked by a loss of faith, a retreat from responsibility, and an unwillingness to cope with personal problems. A culture loses its will to live and to conquer if its members manifest a spirit of retreat and surrender. In the cultural crisis of our time, the role of men is particularly significant. When we say, quote, 
men, unquote. In this context, we mean males, not humanity as a whole. How little true masculinity they in general possess is manifested in their predilection for role-playing. The macho image is cultivated in dress, speech, and behavior. The facade of a man replaces a man. Role-playing is basic to our times. People play a part. They act out a role because the reality of their being is far less important than their public image. The roots of role-playing go deep into modern mentality. The foundations of modern philosophy are in Descartes. His thinking made the individual consciousness the world's basic reality and the starting point of all philosophy. Man's ego, the, quote, I, unquote, took precedence over God and the world. Not surprisingly, the logic of this led to Hume, who dispensed with God and the world as epiphenoma, and even the mind was eroded to the point that it was only momentary states of consciousness rather than a reality. Immanuel Kant went a step further. Things in themselves, in example realities, are unknowable and only phenomena can be known. The real world is thus not a valid area of knowledge, because we can only know appearances. As Schopenhauer put it, the world is will and idea. Philosophy thus set the stage for the substitution of role-playing, an example, phenomena for the real man, the thing in itself, reality. It could thus be said that clothes make the man or woman, and that a good front is essential. Appearances become everything. Appearances began to replace reality in personal relations as well as in national policy, both domestic and foreign. The results have been devastating. Role-playing in the theater ends commonly in a curtain call and a paycheck. In real life, politics, role-playing leads instead to disaster. The result is the failure of men, of males. Early in the modern era, only in the 19th century in the United States, men abandoned the family and its responsibilities to their wives, and religion was similarly relegated to women as their concern. Men chose irresponsibility, and the double standard became a way of life. Of course, men insisted on all the biblical authority given to a man while denying its responsibilities forgetting that all human authority in Scripture is conditional upon obedience to God. No absolute authority is given to man in any sphere, and all authority has service to God and man as its purpose, not self-promotion or aggrandizement. The women's liberation movement is simply the attempt by women to claim the irresponsibilities which today constitute male rights for themselves. The purpose of the children's liberation movement is to claim like privileges of irresponsibility for children. Logically, men who cannot govern themselves will not be able to govern successfully their families, vocations, or nations. The most famous American president of the 20th century could not handle his money nor his own affairs, but he sought to rule the world. More than a few presidents have been like him. Of another man twice a candidate for president, his ex-wife wrote a poem to the effect that men who cannot rule their nanny, wife, children, or nurse are prone to seek to rule the universe. 
Not surprisingly, our worldwide cultural crisis is rooted in the failure of men. The remarkable fact that our era is not that we have had at times aggressive women's liberation movement, but that the vast majority of women have patiently endured the willful immaturity of men. As a high school student, I was interested in athletics and earned two or three, quote, letters, unquote, on the team of one sport. As a university student, I had no time to watch a single game. Since then, I have had an occasional interest in some sports. What amazes me is that men who never played while in school, nor showed much or any interest in sports then, will now show a startling devotion to televised sports. It almost seems as though any refuge from maturity and reality is desired, and spectator sports are a good substitute for the real world and its problems. The pleasures of maturity and reality are to be found in family and work, in worship and in growth in the faith. If maturity and reality are not desired and seen as fulfillment, then role-playing, which stresses a public image and perpetual youth or immaturity, will be basic to man's way of life. For the Chalcedon Report since September 1965, one of the ugliest and most hostile reactions I have received was to a one-sentence reference about the pathetic absurdity of a woman over 80 dressed in a bikini. I was told that it was evil for me to question her, quote, right, unquote, to play the role of a teenager. Although role-playing is common to men, women, and children, it is the failure of men because of their role-playing which has the deepest roots and the most tragic consequences. The abdication of men from their responsibilities as husbands and fathers is having sad results in family life. This abdication does not end in the family. Again and again, all over the country, I have heard men say that they welcome union rules which prevent or make difficult the firing of any man. The responsibility of telling a man that he lacks competency is something they do not want. Some have closed down a particular department and laid off two or three good men to get rid of one incompetent one. An engineer in a plant dealing with federal contracts said that hiring was on a wholesale basis with new contracts. It would quickly become apparent that many of the engineers were only paper shufflers, but nothing would be done because the contract would terminate in a year. At the end of the year, another plant with a new contract would hire the same unchallenged incompetence. No man ever had a bad record follow him. Whether in business, the academic community, or in civil government, nothing is done that is decisive. Presidential candidates promise cuts and cleanups, and as president, do nothing. Being role-playing men, they are good candidates and very poor executives. The Madison Avenue approach has trumped advertising, and appearance and playing a role have replaced reality. Manhood is now a front, not a reality, to our culture in its popular manifestations. Manhood is popularly defined not in terms of God, calling, and family, but in terms of money and status, in example, the terms of ability to present the right public image. 
The church has done much to further this trend. Instead of an unanswering insistence on a unity of faith and works, profession and action, it has been ready to stress pious gush and surface instead of the reality of faith. As a result, pulpit and pew are given to role-playing. Now role-playing by churchmen is, first of all, an attempt to con God, the supreme act of arrogance. It has long been known that, quote, con, unquote, men are most readily victimized by other, quote, con, unquote, men. This is no less true in the church. The old proverb is true. Like priest, like people, and also like people, like priest. The role players find one another, or, to cite another good bit of proverbial wisdom, birds of a feather flock together. Our Lord says, quote, By their fruits ye shall know them, unquote. Matthew 7, 20. A sentence constantly evaded as excuse-makers try to offer a profession of faith, role-playing, for the reality thereof. Labels replace reality. If a man labels himself Christian, we are told we must take him for one. If man calls himself a Christian lawyer or a Christian politician, we are told it is wrong to call attention to the discrepancy between his profession and his actions. To do so is, quote, judgmental, unquote, and a sin. It is held. The practical consequence is that those who are judged are they who expose sin, not those who commit it. The result is a strange religious climate of surface faith. The church is full of millions who profess this surface faith, whom Paul describes as, quote, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, unquote. 1 Timothy 3, 5. We thus have people who want no tampering with their religion, while they refuse to allow their religion to tamper with them. One of the most obvious facts about God, however, is that He does more than tamper with us. He breaks us to remake us. Our cultural crisis rests in the retreat of males from the responsibilities and duties of manhood. The faith has been sentimentalized, and a sentimental faith is unable to produce more than a pious gush. The richness of life's fears and all the varieties of institutional responsibilities have been eroded. Men do not see themselves as priests, prophets, and kings under God. Biblical law emphasizes the local and personal origins of government. All men are to be elders, rulers under God rulers over families, vocations, and the institutions of which they are a part. Over every ten families, there is to be an elder over ten, then over fifty, a hundred, thousands, and so on up. The hundreds were once a basic unit of law and court structures. All men had to be men or pay a price for their refusal. In Scripture, the man who chose to live by subsidy had to have his ears pierced as a public witness to his rejection of a man's responsibility and freedom in favor of security. The ironic fact is that when men cease to be men, they commonly pretend to be men, the macho role, or more often they seek to play God. Man's original sin is to try to be as God, every man his own God, knowing or determining for himself what is good and evil. 
Genesis 3, 5. Some scientists have tried to use science to gain this goal. Dr. Joshua Lederberg holds that we shall enter a post-human age, one in which science will, through genetic engineering, create superhuman men, man-gods, who will have none of the infirmities of present-day men. Science will be able to regrow defective organs, such as a liver or a heart. A uterus will be implanted in a male body to produce a child, and so on and on. Because of the respect for the status of such scientists, their fantasies are not subjected to the ridicule they deserve. Let us assume for a moment that these mad dreams are possible. Will the human predicament be any better? Will man's moral dereliction be solved, or will it not rather be enhanced to produce a demonic world order? Moreover, will the men who do these things, and the men to whom they are done, be more responsible men? It is clear that our scientific community shows no advantage over the rest of the population in integrity, responsibility, and a capacity to function as a husband and father. The dreams of these scientists solve no problems. They evade them. One reason for the uneasiness of many men at the feminist challenge is that the indictment strikes home. However, conceding to the feminist is no substitute for responsibility, but a further abdication. Margaret Wade Labarge, in her study of Henry V, B. 1387, comments on the state of things in that era. Religion had become a superstructure, taken for granted by all. Everyone was given to conventional religious practices with neither commitment nor much concern. The clergy was dedicated to a, quote, decent formalism, unquote. Henry V perhaps took his faith a bit more seriously than most, and, as an administrator, he sought to keep all things functioning in their proper order and place. One would have to say that he functioned better than most heads of state today, and that society had a better focus on justice than now. There was, however, a silent and growing erosion, the erosion of faith and therefore of men. The crisis in English society was deferred, not resolved. In our time, the crisis is past deferment. The time has come for men to ground themselves in the whole counsel of God, to be responsible, mature, and venturesome. There can be no resolution of our world crisis without a resolution of the crisis in male responsibility. To blame conspiracies, however real some may be, special problems, the past, and more, are all evasions if men do not assume their responsibilities today as a privilege and a duty under God. January 1983 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus perfect sacrifice, the love he has shown us by his pain, the very prize. It was there.
Tell the 